When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So the astronauts who are on station now don't take showers. For six months, there's no showers. Pardon me? They, they don't take a shower. Are they getting for, vacuum cleaned or something? The Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today, we're discussing Red Planet. So we're talking all things Mars and Val Kilmer and Carrie Ann Moss and Tom Sizemore. It's going to be a blast. I'm Ethan Enberg, your host, and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. My first guest is an astronomer and volunteer Wikimedian from Chile. Welcome to the show, Carla Toro. Thank you. Hi to all of you. And thank you, Ethan. It's good to put a, a face to the voice because oh. I was listening to the podcast. So it's Great. good to see you, all of them. I'm glad you listened to it. Uh, I hope my face doesn't disappoint you. I, I should have turned <laughs> no, my camera good. off. Um, so we're you, good, we're good. you also, you're, you're reporting to us live from Chile, which is very exciting to me. And you also host a podcast. Is that correct? Yes, I host the podcast of Wikimedia Chile, so you can, uh, we, we're in Spotify, so you can check that. Only on Spotify? Spotify, Deezer, and SoundCloud, I think. Ah, Apple Podcasts, of course. Of course. Apple Podcasts. Come on, <laughs> shout <course>. out. <laughs> um, no, that's very cool. I'm very excited to talk to you, but I got to introduce our next guest. Is that cool? It's, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> okay, thank God. Didn't want to offend you. Our next guest is the Senior Program Director in Space Production at the International Space Station U.S. National Laboratory. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Dr. Ken Saban. Hi, Ethan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hi, Carla. Uh, good afternoon to you both. I should say you're both on different uh, times than I am. But, uh, but yeah, I'm glad that you have joined me. I'm glad that you watched this movie. I'm really curious to know what you guys thought about it. Red Planet. Carla, have you seen this before? Yes, I saw the movie, I have to say. It's not a a, a good one. <laughs> I think Ken will say. Okay, not a classic? It's not my first choice about a movie about Red, the Red Planet. So I, I will think that it was good, a good movie. But every time I was looking at the movie, I thought like... Mm, girl that's not how it works <laughs> that's not how science works <laughs> so i think ken would uh, say anything else <laughs> yeah uh was that interrupting your enjoyment of the movie ken the science aspects of it or i thought it was really entertaining <laughs> okay okay here we go 
but <laughs> but, but 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 Carla's right. It's uh, it um, it has some uh, technical errors. Sci- you know, interpretations of science that are a little odd. And just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to agree, and I'm no scientist. But uh, even just writing down some of my notes, I was like, do I sound stupid, or are they making me feel stupid for writing this? I'm not sure. Um, But I also wanted to mention, I did a little bit of research after watching the movie, not on science, of course, but I realized that there was a lot of tension on this set, apparently. Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore were friends and then had a falling out because of this movie, which I thought was really funny. So apparently Kilmer became enraged when he discovered that production had paid for Tom Sizemore's exercise machine to be shipped to the set. So Kilmer apparently is reported as shouting, I'm making 10 million on this. You're only making two. To which Sizemore responded by throwing a 50 pound weight at Val Kilmer. Uh, The two refused to speak to each other or even come on to the set if the other one was present, which necessitated the use of body doubles when shooting scenes involving both actors. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, I'm sure that did not help things uh, while they filmed Red Planet. No, I have to say that uh, when I was uh, looking at the the movie and I I also, uh, after afterwards, I googled it. And the first thing that happened and the first thing that popped up was like, uh, this movie was a total disaster. Yeah, it. Um, I think it lost like $50 million, which is no joke, and came out like 20 years ago. So I don't know. That's probably a little bit more now. But anyway, uh, the whole thing starts out with this VO kind of explaining the situation that we, we find ourselves in as the human race in 2025, which is only four years from now. So uh, that was my first question off the off the bat is, do you, do you guys think we're in a similar situation than what they're saying? Are we looking to terraform Mars because we've ruined Earth? Yeah, I think we've only got about four years left. <laughs> that's okay. it. That's it. <laughs> no, no, I think I do think we're in a serious situation. I think we're starting to understand that we are changing our environment, changing the climate of this planet and. Um, the extent to which, uh, for example, plastics are a challenge for a life on this world um, is extremely serious. So, uh, and, and the reality is we're not uh, fully addressing it. So in that way, I think the movie is making a statement and, you know, and maybe the timing is off. But uh, if we continue to head down the path that we're heading in, we're going to start to see significant changes to um, the way we have to live our lives because of what we've done to this planet. Now, your question about um, are we going to try to go terraform another world? Um, first of all, if, um, if, if Mars is the solution, then we've got real issues because you're better off just trying to go to Antarctica and uh, make a life for yourself you know, year-round out there because it's probably warmer there. Um, and nice. at least you can breathe the air, right? Whereas you go to Mars, you know, a minus 70 degree um, night is not unusual. And uh, there's no oxygen, you know, outright to be breathing. And the atmosphere is much lower than ours. So um, it is a desolate, frozen desert. That Mars, that, that sort of sums it up. So I don't see that as being a solution. But we, as we get into talking about the movie, um, they had to 
take some um, artistic leaps to allow for something to be reasonable. And we can talk about, you know, what that looks like. But that's my feeling. I don't know. Carla, what do you think? No, I think that uh, what you say, it sums up everything. But I wanted to say that nowadays, when we talk about environment and all of the the things that we have to do to change that that thing, uh, all of all of the all of the climate change, uh, we have to talk about the paywalls behind the scientific articles, and that's why I, I came from uh, the side of Wikipedia, Wikimedia, uh, etc. Because one of the things that we need to do to uh, to change and to I don't know how to say it, but like combat the climate crisis is with data, but the data is behind paywalls. But now, now Wikipedia and well, Wikipedia as a project, but Wikimedia uh, is a place that the information is not behind paywalls, so you can access the information there. So I think that first of all, when we talk about uh, the climate crisis and everything, we have to talk about the paywalls behind the scientific articles because we don't have the, the we can access the information to change all of the things that are happening now so i think that yeah. when we talk about going to mars uh, it's like mm, i don't know maybe we can uh, change things here first that would be nice i don't know if you guys have this problem in chile the way we have here but people being able to get accurate information from a trustworthy source is kind of the king issue, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So even if it is free or on the news or, you know, uh, it's just a mess. People have no clue. It seems to me, at least, they don't know where to turn. You're absolutely right. Uh, and it's... Thank you easy to uh, to go and check out a, and find misinformation than than to uh, find the facts but another right. thing is the the thing that you say i mean uh, the people can cannot uh, uh, how to say it is like um they can Dígame en español no problem oh <laughs> great vaya <laughs> 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 Dale. Dale, dale. No, but uh, people cannot think or uh, yeah understand uh, if that information is uh, misinformation or is a fact. Right. They can differentiate the, the two things. I agree. Ken, why haven't you and all your buddies in the scientific community joined up and made a news program or a news channel or something where everyone involved from the ground up is all scientists and it's all proven factual information. I feel like the journalists don't have PhDs for the most part. And so we can't trust them. They want ratings. Yeah. So I, I'm, I think there's a, a couple of things that come into play. So I'm not going to downplay the issues with misinformation and, um, and people for, you know, political or financial reasons, um, taking a stand that is counter to what we know to be true. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also a, a, a piece of this where um, the science is not always clear cut, it makes it really difficult for, sure. for a lay person to be able to make um, an informed decision or come to an understanding. You know, I think that's 
that's a key part of it. I, um, I would go even further and say that in a lot of cases, the problems that we're talking about here, these challenges are very big. They're global in scale and they are um, epic in the time frame that we are talking about. These are problems that in many cases, our children and their children will be the ones that are going to be living and have to address. Mm -hmm. um, and we're only beginning to, to go at it. So I think that is also very difficult for people in general to understand, to see that, hey, you know, it's just, um, um, a, you know, a, a bag that I got from the grocery store because I got a couple of them and what's the big deal? But you have to look at the, the, the vast scale this is happening on and yep. the fact that it's happening again and again. And um, plastic um, and other things like uh, combustion engines are... Um, impactful because, you know, you have a fire in your fireplace, you're going to put CO2 into the atmosphere. But mm -hmm. that CO2 that you got from burning wood was going to end up in the atmosphere anyway. And it would happen in the next 100, 200, 300 years just because microbes are going to break the wood down and make CO2. That's one carbon cycle that is standard. But um, fuels brought out of, you know, like um, oil or gas or coal, those are carbon sources that have been locked up for tens, hundreds of millions of years and would have stayed locked up for another hundred million years until we, we dug it out and we found a way to uh, vaporize it all. So, mm -hmm. so these are the types of things are big picture things. So I, I understand Carla's absolutely right. It's hard for people to understand and there's a lot of counter to science uh, commentary going on. But at the same time, even the things that do make scientific sense are really tough to grasp well I, I think that's why it's important that it really is on not only the consumer but big corporations to kind of take the lead and make huge changes that will impact all of us without our say essentially um, but uh, but before we get into this super dread awful conversation I do have some fun questions about this movie and I'd love those answered because, or at least your opinion on them, if we don't have an answer. One of them comes in this intro VO section where she's just describing the people that are coming on this mission. And at one point, she says that one character is, quote, a hothead, but a good co-pilot. And for some reason, in my mind, I was like, would they, how, would they let a hothead co-pilot a spaceship? I feel like that adjective means they wouldn't get selected. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's, that's it's good. the first no, mission good. to Mars. Here's good. Okay, so okay, so let's stay we have to step back twenty some odd years to when the movie was made. And if you looked at the people who were a part of the US space program, even the the Russian cosmonaut program, these people were generally military and Ooh. most likely um people who were from the Air Corps, whether it be um Air Force or Marines or or what have you. And those people are high performer, high achiever, and they are, it's sort of built into them that they are the best. They have to be. That's how you have to think. And, wow. um, and if you look at what's happened with the U.S. space program over the last two decades, um, there are still um, uh, pilots. And I, and I will tell you that I know some of them personally. They are not hotheads. They're great people. They're, yeah. they're extreme. They're, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about astronauts in a second, but what you see is they're starting to shift to people who are molecular biologists and physicists and, mm. and even, um, 
uh, in a discussion I had with some people from SpaceX talking about, hey, you know, how are you going to do training for these astronauts? Da, da, da. And they said, training? Astronauts? No, we're going to hire farmers. We're going to get farmers. They're going to be the first people to go to Mars because they're the people who can fix, they can solve problems. They know how to yep. grow their own food. My quick answer to you is no. You're not going to get a hothead for a 14-month mission, right? But um, uh, you do see that things have changed. And one of the, I think, significant things from the movie was that they had the commander is a woman. Right. Which um, is, is not only very, I think, logical and realistic in today's world, but um, from the U.S. Artemis mission to put uh, a person on the moon, the next person to step on the moon, the first next person to step on the moon be a woman, mm -hmm. is my bet. I think that is the plan. So Great. So the movie did get something right. That's nice to know. It got, it got something right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I love that. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I assumed you want somebody co-piloting who is the opposite of a, a cool head who is going to be able to remain calm, solve problems. So I was like, right off the bat, like, what the hell is going on here? Um, and then the other one that I really have to dig into is Amy, the autonomous mapping exploration and evasion machine, uh, creature, uh, villain, evil, vi like the only evil villain of this movie for some reason. Um, but it was a badass. Sure. Amy was a badass. Yeah. Amy was a badass. Yeah. It just seemed yeah. like she was an unnecessary badass, I guess. to me. Like she was supposed <laughs> yes. to be there to help them. And yet you knew, right, the first time that we saw her and she was like the good, like they were trying to portray her as like a dog, a loyal dog on the ship. It was like, this yeah. thing looks friggin' bad news. I thought like the, we like the producer said to to the cast like we need a villain. Yeah. Uh, who who can be that that, that We don't even need a good reason Amy. for them to be a villain. It can just be like ah something went yeah. out of out of whack and now she's in military mode. And and that was my main <laughs> question mode. is why would they have something that has two modes, navigation mode and military <laughs> mode? Well, it was on loan from the Marine Corps. The Marines were kind enough to yeah. ship it over. and. But doesn't that seem like a really dangerous decision to have it essentially go into a mode that will kill all the people on the ship? <laughs> bad, yeah, bad decision. <laughs> that was a yeah. bad, bad decision. So, so I think something that we do need to understand is that um, for any mission like going to Mars or going back to the moon, we are going to be dependent upon uh, technology that we've developed, which could be used for good or bad purposes, right? Um, and at the same time, we are already dependent upon some uh, robotic devices on station, and we're exploring new ones. And whether you look at uh, something like the rovers that have been sent by the um, by the Chinese and the EU and uh, the US to and Russia to uh, Mars and to the moon, um, those were very basic in design and what they, but it's in some ways they were extremely sophisticated. They are the pinnacle of technology of their time. And even today, some of them, you know, Curiosity has been rolling around on Mars for, you know, eight, 10 years. It's a, it's a, a, a miraculous piece of hardware. So we are going to be reliant. And I think there's something to be said from the movie that you have to consider that. How are you going to use it? Um, um, how could things go wrong? And um, with, at the same time, understanding that we will not be able to do it without. That's just what it's going to come down to. And right. I, I think Amy was 
you know, why would you do it? They said they needed a, um, a device that would allow them to um, find their way. There's no GPS system on Mars. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think there were probably much better approaches. That just seems to be the one that that sold would sell the most tickets, right? So, unfortunately, it <laughs> yeah. did not. It did not. Unfortunately, it did not. <laughs> it did not. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. Um yeah, yeah and and by the way, asterisk military mode and guerrilla tactic military yes. mode. Yes. Like yeah. it wasn't just yeah. it could have easily easily <laughs> killed all of those people as soon as it felt threatened and instead it goes into guerrilla tactic mode where yes. it just breaks one of their ribs and then scurries off. <laughs> and then just kind of waits around, I don't know doing what, until it can pick yeah. off one by one to like mess with their heads. I I don't know. Yeah, and that part when uh, when the other guys uh, were looking at what Amy was looking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, she's like showing off. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Why? I, I really have no clue. I mean, uh, Ken, do you guys uh, design stuff in order to just... No, you're you're taking your no, head but no. they but you know they do have um, a set of robots on station right now in a little project called Astrobee, and it's a bunch of these little softball or so sized balls that float around, and they've got little CO two cartridges for propellant, and people on the ground can fly them around. You can like program oh. it to go do something and move around, and it's That's really fun. a a STEM education tool. So, um, although it doesn't have a practical uh, you know, purpose at this point, it's a training device, which helps us understand how we'll be able to use systems like this in the future. It's a way to get young people engaged, right? Um, um, the three of us aren't going to be the ones who are going to go walk on Mars, but our kids or their kids will be the ones who either walk on Mars or enable that. Um, I doubt it'll I be my kids, but that's a nice thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, I think, you know, you look at some of the other devices that have been developed, like the robotic arm that Canada built for the shuttle, and there's a Canada arm on the space station now. Um, those are extremely important uh, parts of the whole program, the whole system that allow it to happen. So um, can I see something like someday an Amy being created or uh, something similar? Uh, perhaps. And, and getting things... You know, I've heard that if you build devices that are closer to something we're, we're familiar with, it makes it easier to interact with them. So that might be a sure. reason why it would look like a dog or a person or what have you. But um, yeah. uh, a lot of movies have gone down that dark and dangerous path and with bad consequences. So I don't know, you know, they did it because they wanted it for the artistic purposes, but um, I believe there will be things like that, maybe more like a little rover that goes with you and carries your stuff and but there'll be things like that to help us yeah that's very cool um another question here and this is perfect because you work with the international space station how likely is it that someone walks in on someone else in the shower <laughs> yeah <laughs> i had the same question <laughs> how normal is that Okay, so I'm gonna. Um, so I, I can't get. There's some details I know that I can't. I can't share specifically. But okay. What what I will say is, um, we have to understand that these people are living in a different situation. So just take the um, the yeah. recent launch on SpaceX of the four 
um, amateur astronauts, right? And they, they orbited for four days, which is quite a, an achievement, I think. Yeah. Um, there, um, through halfway through the mission, the toilet failed. So they had to resort to the old, there's a backup, right? There has to be a backup. And backup if you toilet. look back at the Apollo missions, they talk, they, you can see what the backup was. So the backup, the Apollo missions were all men. So they had a device that they could urinate into. It was a tube and it had a little adapter at the end. Um, so you sort of plug in and, and do your business. But if you had to go number two, if you had to, you know, had a bowel movement, you had to go to the bathroom into a bag. Okay. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind that the space that they were in on this uh, SpaceX, this recent Dragon mission, um, was probably only about the size of the compartment of a Volkswagen bug. So all four of them are in there. Oh my lord! And, for four days. You, for four days, and you've got to go take a bowel movement. I mean, where there's nowhere to go. You're right there. Oh so, my god! So now let's take a look at what's happening on space station. Um, they are living with each other for six months at a time, so they really get to know each other. Sure. And um, I think there is a kind of camaraderie and understanding between them. And many times they're military or they've been trained, but. They, there's a little desensitization to that. Now, are you going to walk in on Carrie Ann Moss, you know, coming out of the shower? Probably not. And there is separation, and they have their own quarters. And um, and even from the um, NASA side, at after work hours, which is like five or six o'clock their time, all the cameras are turned off, and they're um, mm. they have you know they're it's sort of personal time. You have to be willing to. Uh, be a little bit closer to people than maybe you would be otherwise. And that's part of their training and part of what's going to be, I think, the mental piece of us doing really long missions and why Space Station is such a good model for that, such a good place to to try these things out. I mean, first of all, I love that pretty much no matter what I ask, you're taking a defensive stance of like, this is kind of normal. <laughs> this makes sense, Ethan. So I love that. Um, and secondly... I just felt like it was completely inappropriate <laughs> and that there were like okay. no locks, which is a really, I don't know, to me, elementary thing. Uh, if you were going to take a shower that no one can just, I mean, the doors were like automatic. It was like, and the doors open. Yeah. Yeah. But, That's it. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to be like that. Um, um, you know, but I think there's another piece of it. If we look back at the SpaceX approach, which, they're sending farmers, you know, they may send families, right? Or husband mm-hmm. and wife teams where it doesn't matter nice. in that way. Yeah. yeah. The, I will say one other thing, um, just yep. because, um, so the astronauts who are on station now don't take showers. For six months, there's no showers. Pardon me? They, they don't take a shower. Are they getting for, vacuum cleaned or something? Well, so what <laughs> they, they use a washcloths. They, they wash themselves off with washcloths. There is not a... A shower like per se. Soapy washcloths? Um, yeah, they can use some detergent. And their hair, they actually use a, a shampoo that requires no water. It's a rinseless shampoo. Ooh. Dry shampoo. A dry shampoo, yeah. And that's that's been known to work. In... You're telling me they're clean. I, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm okay, not sure not I would say. Yeah, I'm not sure I would say that exactly. You know, they wear the same clothing for a couple of days at a time. You'd go through too much clothing, and there's no real way to wash it on station. So um, hmm. so there, you're used to a different set of smells, too, I think, when you're on station. I 
never considered that. I've never seen that in the movies either. No, they they don't pump. they don't talk no. about no. some of these things. They don't talk about they're not dirty secrets. They're kind of the practical nature of human beings in space. In fact, I remember talking to a guy from NASA who said going to Mars would be easy if we didn't have to send people. <laughs> sure. That's a, that's the problem is yeah. keeping these people alive and keeping them clean and healthy and yeah, so, I mean, I will say, Dr. Zavin, dirty secrets sounds like the exact perfect terminology to describe. <laughs> I know you said it's not that, but that is that it is, these people it are is, dirty. Yeah. They're going number two in bags. I don't know. It just feels like these are dirty yes, secrets. It, yeah, so the toilet system on station, uh, even when it works properly, is an, uh, is it's, it's very sophisticated, sure. but it is... Um, uh, you know, they the it's actually Soviet in design. The Russians back during the time of the Soviet designed it, and that's uh, same system is used by the on the Russian side of the station and on the U.S. side. And um, it's not uh, perfect, but it works. And that's what you're okay. going to come down to: is how do you build systems that can keep the human systems alive? Okay, this is my last. Hopefully. We're going to get into a bunch of science stuff, I promise all of you. But this, I have to ask about my, hopefully my last really dumb question. There's a scene where they're making moonshine on the spaceship. They've like taken over some lab and now they're using it to concoct alcohol, heavy uh, percentage alcohol, it seems. So would that be allowed? How did you feel about that? Uh, on the U.S. side, they're U.S. government employees on the job, no alcohol. That's so. There's no alcohol now. The Russians, here we go. They have alcohol. They bring alcohol <laughs> up there, and um, sometimes I've been told the U.S. Um, uh, astronauts will go over and um, meet with and have a drink? and yeah, consort with their with their Russian colleagues, but. Uh, I don't see somebody making moonshine on station, but if we're going to go to Mars and somebody wants um, a beer, uh, you know, I think we're going to we're going to head down that path. Now, I will say before I, hmm. I I mess up on that, you won't drink beer on the way to Mars. You'll drink beer when you get to Mars. Drinking beer on the way there, like having a beer Using on resources. the space station, yeah, it's bad, very bad. Any any carbonated beverage the during the shuttle era. Uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi had a, a competition to try to build the best can of soda and then provide it to the astronauts, and it Whoa. met with disaster, disastrous consequences. Yeah. You're making it sound like people were killed because of this. No, what do you it wasn't mean, that disastrous? bad, but, but just imagine, just in your mind, picture that um, when you drink like a soda and um, there's some gas evolved, you burp, and the gas comes out. Okay. And that the reason is is because the liquid is heavier than the gas, so the liquid's at the bottom, the gas comes to the top, and out it comes. In microgravity on the space station, that is not the case. Everything is a jumble. So when the gas has yeah. evolved and you burp, the gas isn't necessarily the first thing that comes out. Could be everything else in your stomach. You're telling me that that Coke and that's and Pepsi, they learned that the hard way. They were basically forcing people to like barf burp. They were, yeah, that's what happened. They, that, and that's, yeah, they learned a, a tough, a tough lesson. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. So, so <laughs> beer is not going to wow. be, they're not going to drink beers, but they um, do have um, vodka, 
um, from the Russian side. And um, we did have a project from Budweiser on the space station where that Budweiser kind of claimed, hey, we want to be the um, first company to brew beer on Mars. That was their big sale to us. And what they did was they developed an experiment to look at growing barley um, on in microgravity, which is actually a very interesting experiment since okay. uh, barley and other grasses are significant to the food chain and uh, growing food in microgravity isn't, you know, you learn a lot from it, whether you're using it to, you know, support your mission to Mars or just understand how barley grows. Um, it's an interesting experiment. So, okay. And it's a bold move. <laughs> it was a bold, a bold move, move, yeah. The funny thing is their little experiment they um, was in a container that looked like a large beer can. It was classic. Wow. Yeah. Well, hey, speaking of, that was another one of my questions. Uh, apparently, Amy is powered by, quote, a helium nuclear power cell the size of a beer can, yeah. which can help her run for eight months, and I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, so there are some nuclear... Um, uh, devices that you can use to generate um, electricity. And if you look at um, some um, rovers that have been sent out by uh, the U.S. and other countries, they've used nuclear cells. So mm. uh, that technology exists. There are challenges with it, to, you know, to, to be honest. There's ser serious challenges. But for some things, that's what you're going to have to do, especially as you start to move away from the sun and solar is no longer an option. You're going to have mm. to come up with another um, mode. And nuclear is, you know, long term. And as long as it's uh, kept um, sealed and away from the people, it's generally going to be a really effective way to generate power. Yeah, but I had a, I have a question there because uh, here Amy is powered by that uh, hydrogen cell, but the uh, they're going to Mars. It's not that far away from the Sun, <laughs> and the Curiosity rovers uh, they are they have like solar panels. So yeah, so it could work. Yeah, so so yeah, okay, but um, you can imagine that it might be tough for Amy to wander around with a big solar cell. It wouldn't make for good cinematography oh, yeah. if she was slow yeah. and had a big <laughs> fin on her back, yeah. right? So yeah, we need her uh, running around like a wolf. That's right. That's right. So oh, yeah. it's, you're bringing up a great point, though, Carla. There was a quote that uh, the religious uh, guy on the ship, who I got to be honest, don't know why he was there. He said at some point uh, that no one ever tested the ship properly. He was like, oh, you guys got to have faith because you're on this ship that no one's ever tested properly going to Mars. And I immediately wrote that down like, I'm sure there's ample testing that you guys do before. No? You're telling me no? Well, I mean, everything, you know, you're putting the space station up there. So here's an interesting point about space station. So... The space station was not built by the United States. It was built by the Russians and um, a whole bunch of European countries, the Canadians, the Japanese. So hmm. all these parts, they were assembled for the first time in space. They had never Whoa. seen these big pieces, had never seen each other before until they were connected. Think about that. And they were being put together by people who had no nothing to do with their production. And they're doing it in microgravity, a bunch of astronauts or what is it, a bunch of hothead uh, space jocks, right? That's the, so so um, it, 
um, a lot of the technology and the things that we do, uh, even looking at space shuttle, they were fantastic um, uh, concept, you know, vehicles. They were built and there was nothing else like them. All their parts had to be made specifically for those vehicles. Same with space station. Much of the space station is built specifically for that application. And yeah, there were, it's, you know, there's a generation of um, evolved components that led to that point. We knew that this would work, but some of the components had never been uh, fully tested and we learned things when they were put in space. A great example is, I'm um, going back to the bathrooms. For some reason, I love that topic. Oh, you're obsessed the, with it. I know I'm obsessed with it. The uh, <laughs> urine recycler. So this is, they recycle all the water on station. So urine, sweat, mm, like water all world. the water. And then, so the the joke is that um, what you drink today as coffee is what you're going to be drinking again tomorrow. Okay? So, yeah. so they, built, yeah. they built this device <laughs> that is a marvel of technological advancement that allows them to take all these different liquids of uh, water based, um, purify them, and then return them to the water supply for the astronauts to use. And uh, they tested that unit on the ground, I think in Alabama is where it was de developed, for months. Over a year they had tested this thing. They had guys drinking coffee all day and peeing into it and drinking this stuff coming out and it was great. Water was great. They put it on the space station and it failed within a month. Whoa. Yeah. So, so what it did was so they had to, Whoa. they had to figure couldn't figure it out, had to bring it down, take it apart, bring it down and look at it. And they took it all apart, which you can imagine what that must have been like. And what they found was it was totally clogged with um, calcium and uh, phosphorus cal um, salts, calcium sulfate and phosphates and, why were the, why was that getting in there in space a, and not on the ground? That's right. That's a good question. It's because the astronauts lose so much bone mass. Oh my god! Because their bones and their muscles they're oh, wasting away god. because they aren't being worked upon by gravity, and it was all ending up in their urine and then in the water supply. They're peeing out their bones. They are. So so they um yeah. so they had to you know they do um at least two hours of exercise a day on these contraptions they've got up there and they Damn. take supplements, but it jacked. makes you think about the fact if you're going to send people to Mars and um, they're going to be losing all their bone mass for 14 months, you won't be able to take that one small step. You, you won't oh be able to Lord. walk. But that's the great thing of science. We, we that's learn right. through that's right. experience. That's right. Guess and check <laughs> in space. Yeah. Wow, that's really scary. Okay, um, sorry, I just can't get over peeing bones. Um, so we got to talk, speaking of scary, um, about the fire. There's a huge fire that happens on the space station or the spaceship. Yeah. And I mean, the first thing that occurred to me was like, this station would not survive. How would such a huge fire be put out and nothing? It seems like everything ended up being all right. She first uses an extinguisher, which launches her into a wall. The computer makes fun of her for it. I did actually enjoy that aspect of the movie that the computer had an attitude. Um, at one point, she yeah. tells her there's a fire, and Carrie Ann Moss says, like, oh, that's not good. And the computer goes, no, it isn't, <laughs> which I love the sass. 
Um, but anyway, she uses an extinguisher. She gets some of it out. The computer basically tells her, you can't do this anymore. There's too much fire. You're not going to be able to stop all this fire. She like latches herself onto a wall and then opens like a big window. And then all the fire just gets sucked out into space. And then for the most part, everything's cool. So is that an accurate series of events? I don't know if, if that that's an accurate uh, thing. I, I mean, Ken can uh, talk more about it. But from, from my side, uh, with my little experience in uh, space science... <laughs> you're, you're saying no go. No, I think that it, I, I thought it was a great move. I think oh. like uh, you open that doors, there's no air. You suffocate it. Yeah, it's extinguished. So I was like, yeah, that's a great, okay. great, great move. Yeah. So, um, so um, first of all, fire behaves differently in microgravity, and at the point when she's in this problem. Um, they have lost their centrifugal force. However, they're generating artificial gravity. So, yeah. um, and what you see is interesting on, on the ground. We're all, we recognize that fire works by um, air coming underneath and then being pushed, you know, pulled up because um, the, um, you know, cool, uh, warmer air rises. And so you constantly have air running through it. Well, in microgravity, if you light a candle, instead of looking like a, a yellow and then orange and red and with smoke coming off the top fire, it's just a blue ball. Wow. And it suffocates itself after mm. a few moments because um, the only thing bringing new air in, it's not being pulled in, it's just diffusion. And it, it starts to produce so much CO2 that it suffocates itself. Larger fires, though, especially fires that um, are running in a certain direction. Let's say you have a, a piece of conduit, like a, a metal tube, and you fill it with um, uh, vaporized kerosene and air, oxygen or air, and you light it at one end, it will run down the pipe. And they have uh, did experiments. There's a group at the Glenn Research Facility in Cleveland, part of NASA's uh, organization, that did studies on this to try to understand it because they wanted... They wanted to make sure that Carrie Ann wouldn't die. This is, you know, their, or future Carrie Ann Mosses wouldn't die. <clears throat> now, there was an example of a, a very serious fire in space, and it was on a mirror, uh, one of the Russian uh, uh, state, the Russian station, and a U.S. astronaut was there. He was a guest with uh, two cosmonauts. So he was drinking. <clears throat> no, well, he may have been, but at this particular time, he was not. Okay. But um, they have a, um, a series of devices for emergency air production. If, you, if the air supply fails, you can, it's a chemical reaction that produces oxygen and as a byproduct. And it is a perfect solution because if you really need oxygen and you turn this thing on, it will work. It will not only work, but you cannot turn it off, which is if you need oxygen, you don't want it to fail. You want it to work. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They're not sure what happened in this particular case, but they think that when that device, which is a cylinder filled with a, a very active chemical agent, was being uh, filled up uh, in the Soviet Union at the time, uh, the person who was filling it got part of their rubber glove in the material. Oh, my God. And um, when they went to open the valve, it caught fire. And like I told you, once you turn this thing on, 
you are not turning it off. So it's it's um, a very active chemical agent that produces oxygen, and now it's on fire. And the U.S. astronaut said it was like a very big blowtorch blowing hot fire and material across the um, the area it was in. Now, oh my Lord. they thought about abandoning ship. The problem was they had to get by this fire to, to, to abandon ship. Couldn't. So they went and got extinguishers. They put on face masks and their air breathers, and they fought the fire with um, CO2 um, fire extinguishers like we saw Carrie Ann Moss doing. And and they were finally able to do it. They put out the fire. But one of the most telling things I I remember was one of the astronauts, the cosmonauts said he had a burning desire to open a window. That was his, right? Same thing, but... If you're not wearing a spacesuit, that's a very bad idea. Yeah, if you guys are listening out there and you're in space and there's a fire and you're not in a spacesuit, don't open the window. Don't, don't open the window. So, Good advice. So it is something that needs to be considered. I, I would say it's something that we've had to consider since the beginning of any ship faring, right? Whether you're on a regular ship out at sea, a wooden ship or a submarine, these are all things that, are, that we have to consider. And the space, I'm part of the National Lab and the International Space Station uh, and NASA's exploratory effort is to look at these challenges. How do we overcome this? If this happens, how do we save the mission and allow us to continue um, on successfully, crew and everything? I wanted to talk, to talk about something, uh, but mostly ask you, Kenneth. But uh, you, when I was looking at, at the movie, when I was watching, watching uh, I thought about the mental health about the astronauts because they were like uh, six months in in space, uh, and I wanted to ask you about uh, that thing because I saw an article on Wikipedia about the mental mental health about uh, astronauts, and I was like, hmm, maybe I can come to the source and ask directly to Ken. <laughs> yeah, so mental health is a serious challenge for people being held for a long period of time away from their families and I, even in the movie there was a scene where one of the guys one of the astronauts who gets you know, killed off um, he says um, he looked back and he didn't see the earth today mm-hmm. he said he, he did he expected it he expected at some point he wouldn't be able to see the earth but it still shocked him and I think there is something to be said for that there's something you know the the um, uh, astronauts on the space station can look down and see the Earth. They're right there. They're, you know, 250 miles away. But um, as you start to move away from it, uh, it, there's you do lose something. There's something about seeing the Earth, and even with the Apollo astronauts, seeing the Earth rise. So um, a lot of effort has been put into understanding mental health. How do you pick the right team so they can work together and be a comfort to one another? What are the activities you can give them? Like, can they grow a garden, a little garden of vegetables, and maybe have some of those built into their diet? That's very um, significant. Um, How do you um, connect them to their families or people back at home? Especially when, you know, if you're on Mars, they, um, Carrie Ann Moss mentioned the fact that she sent a message and she'd have to wait, you know, 20 some odd minutes to get a response. So you're not having a dynamic... Uh, conversation with people mm-hmm. at at some point. 
Um, but on Space Station, they have movie night, and they'll watch movie. They'll watch Red Planet, and all make fun of each other, and you know, stuff like that. They'll um, have certain special foods. They have birthdays and birthday cake. Um, and I've been told that when they, after a birthday, they spend literally weeks of time pulling particles of birthday cake out of the air filters. Oh right. So, um, but they, I think all of um, those um, things are being, are leading up to us understanding how we will live when we step out and say things as simple as what underwear feels comfortable to you. And the, and that's actually something the astronauts get a big yeah. say in. They mm -hmm. get to pick for their underwear or they can go out and buy their underwear because how comfortable they feel in a piece of, you know, jockey shorts that they've worn for three straight days is part of their overall well-being. Yeah. That, uh, that makes sense. Um, I have so many more questions and we're running low on time, but I maybe thought we could end on a hopeful note, an optimistic note, because at the core, this movie is about living on another planet and, you know, spreading our civilization uh, in this, uh, in this on Mars, of course. But so they say that they have sent probes with algae to Mars and that they started growing. Uh, it turns out there's also these nematodes, someone calls them, that are making oxygen. So are we working on anything like that? Do you see that in our future, whether it's the moon or Mars or somewhere else? It's part of a terraforming effort. Yeah. Um, I can see, you know, there's been a lot of talk of could we grow crops on Mars? And it turns out they've done analyses of the Martian soil. They they don't call it dirt. They call it regolith. That's the technical Ooh. term. Um, uh, and there are problems with it. It will have to be um, uh, chemically modified to grow Earth crops okay. on Mars. And not, and not to mention the fact that it will have to be done in a little dome and uh, the radiation also has to be dealt with, all these other things. Um, but what, in thinking about that and all these modifications and things they had to work through, what it really starts to tell me is um, that they are doing comparisons back to Earth. They're thinking about the Earth and our situation in the environment. And that perhaps the greatest impact to us is not the fact that we will someday go to Mars and uh, build colonies on Mars. I have no doubt that that will happen. It is the... Um, the things we learn about ourselves, the things we learn about our own world and the way things work and the technology that we develop that will not only impact our ability to get to Mars and live there, but will impact us here on Earth that are the greatest benefits that we will get from these exploration missions. And it's a hard thing for people to see going back to some of our early conversation around seeing the bigger long-term picture because everybody's like, oh, it costs you know, $2 billion a year to operate the space station. Um, and that's, you know, money could be spent doing other things, but we learn so much about our planet and about um, science in a general sense and about ourselves that it's actually a great deal, just a great investment in ourselves as people. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the fact that 
we are at a very significant time in human history where we, the three of us and everybody who's paying any attention, are seeing humanity take its first real steps. The Apollo missions were fantastic achievements and they were, I mean, you can't talk about it enough, but they were one-offs and they're done. There was no then what's. We're now at a point where the then what's are starting to happen and they aren't happening in as a US centric event. They are worldwide. This is humanity taking its first real steps out into space and we are getting to see that and benefit from that. So in that way I am extremely enthusiastic about it and excited and feel really um, proud and I think optimistic about our future as a people. Well, that's awesome. I, I, it's exactly what I wanted to hear because I think we're doomed. So, <laughs> you, you think you're doomed? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I just, I'm more about, I, no, I have faith. I have faith. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, you're both way smarter Talk than to us, Carla. So the fact that you guys have, have faith and are optimistic, <laughs> that's great news. I think the more I learn about the climate, the more doomed we are. But so, no. Uh, yeah, Carla, what do you think? And also, uh, tell people where they can uh, find you and, and listen to this podcast you were telling me about. Everything that we are talking about today, um, all of the science that we are talking about today, you can uh, look it up in Wikipedia. I, I'm like, uh, I, I always say, I always say that I'm Wikipedia smart. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I read a lot, uh, and I'm an editor of Wikipedia. Uh, but you can go and. and Look up uh, at any article about science in English Wikipedia, and it's very good, and it's great. And uh, all of the Wikipedia, especially in English, but in all of the the language, they are reliable in in science. And uh, you can, uh, I don't know, like uh, talk about this, and you can watch uh, a lot of things that that we say about this. Uh, a lot of things that we uh, say about this myth about uh, Wikipedia, but just to summarize <laughs> everything that we're talking about, uh, if you have, a, if you know how to write and you have an internet connection, uh, you can edit Wikipedia. And uh, here I'm uh, inviting you all to put your knowledge in in Wikipedia. But uh, first of all, or uh, I don't know, like to yeah summarize. Uh, you can go to uh, any of the social media about uh, the Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, I'm from Chile, so <laughs> you can go and look it up for Wikimedia Chile. We are a small, yeah, small country, but <laughs> we're good. <laughs> uh, and I host the, the podcast about Wikimedia Chile. Uh, it's called the Wiki Cafe, like, uh, like a wiki coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And you can go and, and check it out in Spotify, Deezer, uh, Apple Podcasts, etc. Okay, love it. Well, everybody check out the Wiki Cafe, get a cappuccino. Um, that sounds delightful to me. Thank you, Carla, for watching this movie and joining me on the show. Uh, Dr. Saban, anything you want to tell people about? Well, um, I, if people want to talk to me about uh, doing work, science in space, um, you can reach me through the International Space Station National Lab, or you can... Uh, send me an email or LinkedIn or what have you. Um, and, you know, we talked initially about the environment and, uh, you know, and whether we're doomed or not. And we actually today, it should be launched on our website. You should be able to go there. But we just launched a, um, a challenge for people to come up with uh, science 
to be done in space that will help us understand uh, the environment or find solutions for environmental challenges. And there's money to do this research. So you wouldn't have to come with your money. Just come with the idea and we'll help set up an experiment and you can get your experiment run in space to try to help save the planet. I love that. I have a bunch of ideas already. <laughs> so, but they are scientific accurate. Yeah. Uh, they're they're uh, just suggestions, <laughs> I guess. Like, what if we just had no car Fridays? Throwing it out there, no one can use a car on the planet on Fridays. No good. Yeah. I don't, you don't even have to go to space to enact that. You can just say it. Yeah. yeah. We had a few uh, of those last year, didn't we? Yeah, that's yeah. true. We had we had no car year, and it worked. It worked. The air was really clear for a while. It there. started working, didn't it? Yes. Um, okay. Well, thank you guys both seriously so much. It was an absolute delight to talk to you today, and I hope we speak again for some other really silly Martian movie. Thanks, Ethan. Bye, Carla. <laughs> thank you. Bye, Kenneth. <laughs> <laughs>